Well, good morning, church family. And um, I was just thinking about the last song that Emily was leading. Um, Lord, I'm running to your arms. We worship a God who welcomes our presence. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter your week. It doesn't matter if it's been a good week or a not good week. We worship a God who welcomes our presence. Is that, that's good, isn't it, Debbie? Amen. <laughs> that's right. So, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, the God we worship is so happy to have you here. And His church is so happy to have you here, too. Very, very glad that you're here today. And we're wrapping up a series of messages uh, called Unreligious. So, if you look at the bulletin and you said. What's the word unreligious doing on a church bulletin? You've come to the right place. Because we've been, um, we've been trying to answer the question, how can I live a holy life for God without coming across as a holier-than-thou jerk? <laughs> you know? How can we do that? And um, we live in a world... Uh, that um, scrutinizes um, people of faith, and we live in a world that at the same time really longs for genuine, authentic faith. And so how can we we demonstrate God's love where God has put us? And where God has put you is your place to represent Him to the people that He wants to, to welcome. God wants to use you to welcome others. And he wants to use whatever you've been through to welcome others. And, uh, and we're going to learn in a passage of Scripture today how God used someone uh, whose heart was all in for him. And yet he lived in a culture that was indifferent to him. So... If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're going to look at Daniel chapter 6. It's, I would say, the most popular account in Daniel's life. It's about Daniel in the lion's den. And if you're studying through the book of Daniel, by the way, you might know, uh, and it might be helpful if you understand how the book is divided... Basically, it's divided into two parts. Daniel chapters 1 through 6 contain six uh, self-contained events in the life of Daniel uh, or his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And each chapter from Daniel 1 through 6 is a particular event in, uh, in their lives while they were in exile in Babylon And then from Daniel chapter 7 through 12, we have a series of of visions or prophecies that Daniel has. And so it's kind of chronological when you get from Daniel 1 through 6, but then once you get to Daniel 7 and 8, you just have to understand it's not so much a narrative as it is a series of visions and prophecies. So hopefully that'll help you uh, as you read through the book of Daniel. But we're in Daniel chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and then verses 16 to 23. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the, satra- all the presidents and the ki- of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, And with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went into his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came Near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no kind of harm was found on him. Because he had trusted 
in his God. This is God's word. Anybody here ever heard a guy named Cliff Young? Cliff Young? Well, you're about to. Clifford Young. Back in 1983, uh, Australia hosted an ultra marathon, a 573.3 mile foot race from Sydney to Melbourne. Now, this race takes days to run, and, and professionals from all over the world came to participate. And evidently, the day of the race, the registration was still open because shortly before the race began, a 61-year-old farmer named Cliff Young, wearing overalls and galoshes over his boots, walked up to the registration table to enter the race. The registration people thought he was joking. Cliff Young said, no. I really want to run. So they gave him a number, pinned it on his old overalls, and Cliff Young goes to the starting line, and when the gun went off, the professional runners with sculpted bodies and stately strides began, and then there was Cliff. He had this awkward, clumsy, goofy-looking shuffle. It was just a shuffle. He wasn't even running. He was shuffling. And all the crowd was laughing at him and everything, you know. Go on, might. So they talk in Australia. Five days, 14 hours, and seven minutes later, the crowd was still laughing, only it was a different kind of laugh. 573.7 miles later, Cliff Young shuffled across the finish line at 1.25 in the morning. In first place. I'm not making this up. He had won. He'd won by nearly 10 hours. He'd shattered the old record by nearly Two days. And reporters flocked. What was his secret? You know, was it the pumpkin seeds that he ate? Was it the water? What was it? And here's what they found out. Cliff had shuffled his way to victory by not sleeping. There it is. I mean, the other runners would run like for 18 hours straight, and then they'd go to sleep, then get up and run another 18 hours. Not Cliff. Well, Cliff slept like two hours the first day. Then while everybody else was sleeping, he'd get up and he'd run, and then the second day, he only slept for an hour. And then when he took the lead, he just kept running. And he endured five days 14 hours and like, you know, seven minutes at the age of 61. The equivalent of four, nearly four marathons a day. And here's the kicker. 
He gets $10,000 prize money, which in turn, he divided it among the others who'd finished. He gave it all away. I mean, it's a great story. It's, it's one of the greatest runs in the history of running. And what made this story so extraordinary was, was the fact that Cliff Young and his awkward, clumsy shuffle was just so ordinary. He was so ordinary. His story is a, an, a, a story about a quiet, consistent, patient, steadfast, extraordinary strength through a very ordinary life. The power of ordinary. (laughs) But let's be honest. Who wants to be ordinary? How uh, How many of you have a bumper sticker on your car that reads, my child is an ordinary student at Westview Elementary? Yeah, I didn't think so. We don't want to be ordinary. We want to be radical. We want to be epic. We we, we want to be innovative. We want to be extreme. We want to be on the edge. We've got this, you know, next big thing-itis going on. And uh, I was really challenged uh, by this thought by an author uh, named Michael Horton, Horton, who has written a book titled Ordinary, Sustainable Faith, in a radical, restless world. It's a good read. Listen to what he says. Like every other area of life, we have come to believe that growth in Christ can and should be programmed to generate predictable outcomes that are unrealistic and are not even justified biblically. I mean, we want big results, and sooner rather than later. And we have forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts Through ordinary means of grace. He loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers. He sends us out into the world to love and serve others through ordinary callings. Now Daniel chapter 6. Our scripture reading here is about an ordinary man. Daniel's, Daniel's not a pastor. Okay? He's not a a religious leader. He works in government. He gave his whole life working in government. That was just who he was. And his life is uh, really about an ordinary life, but a life that consisted in day-by-day, unstoppable, undaunted, left, right, left, right, left, right, shuffling faith, whom God used in an extraordinary way. And, you know, we see this uh, from Daniel chapter 1. He's this youngster. He's this teenager. He's been stripped from his family. He's been exiled to the capital of a world empire. And he spends the rest of his life in Babylon. And by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, The Babylonian Empire has come and gone. Seventy years have passed. The Persian Empire is now in place. Daniel is in his 80s. He's in his 80s. And he's a part of the Persian administration. Under a king uh, called uh, Darius. Darius the Mede. 
And uh, what some scholars assert is that Darius the Mede is another name for Cyrus of Persia. And you can get a glimpse of that in Daniel 6.28. It says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and, and that word and could also be translated, that is. So to read, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Daniel, I mean, he's serving under another king. He's in his 80s. He's walked with God his entire life. He not only knows about God, he knows God. His identity is in God. God is his life. God is, is his life. And, and that comes through when you even consider what his name means. You know what the word Daniel means? Daniel, God is my judge. God is my judge. Now, that sounds ominous and intimidating to us 21st century Americans because the word judge you know, sounds ominous and intimidating. But, but to Daniel, no, it, it was a reminder of his identity. Because to say God is my judge is to say Nebuchadnezzar is not my judge. Darius is not my judge. How my colleagues feel about me, not my judge. God's my judge. God's opinions of me, God's feelings of me, that's what matters most. Even what I think about myself doesn't matter most. What God thinks about me matters most. And Daniel had that ingrained into the very core of his soul, and it affected every part of his life. Daniel's identity was in God. And when I mean identity, what, what I'm saying is that, you know, abundance of money or lack of money didn't make him feel superior or inferior. Promotions or persecutions, it didn't undo him. Beauty or lack thereof, didn't faze him. I mean, Daniel knew that he belonged to God. He knew how God felt about him. And even though he was in exile, even though he was a slave in a foreign land, Daniel, Daniel knew that he was free because he was a servant of God. And you are never more free than when you know to the marrow of your soul that you're a servant of God. And in this freedom, Daniel excelled. And the scriptures say here in the first verses that Daniel was a part of this new administration in the Persian Empire, 120 regions governed by 120 uh, governors or satraps who reported to three presidents who then reported to the king. And Daniel happened to be one of those three presidents. And in fact, Daniel's professionalism was so distinguished that the king was kind of leaning on him to be the first among equals, the prime minister. Note these two compliments that appear in verse 3 and in verse 5. We see that Daniel has a, a spirit of excellence, an excellent spirit about him. He's skilled. He knows how to do his job, and he does it well. And then in verse 5, his enemies say, we shall not find any ground for complaint unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, can you think of a better compliment to pay someone than to say, you know what? I mean, she's really good at what she does. 
I mean, she's very, very skilled. I mean, she does her work with excellence. She's talented. And he walks with God. I mean, he knows God. He walks with God. Can't be bought. Flawless integrity. Keep in mind, I mean, this is what's said by his enemies. Daniel lives in a world that does not share his worldview. He's in a pluralistic culture that does not share his faith. And so what we're learning here in these first few verses is that when God is your life, well, an attractive excellence will show through your life. It just will. Won't it? Does it? Is God your life? Is there a spirit of excellence about the way you do your work? Are there grounds for complaint? Uh, now, I, I said, are there grounds for complaint? People may complain, but are there grounds for complaint? Do we see our work as a ministry of serving God? Do we realize that, you know, tomorrow morning, you're not just entering a classroom, you're not just entering an office, you're not just going into a studio or a warehouse or a clinic or a hospital or a retail store or a construction site or a farm field. You are entering a sanctuary. You are entering a holy place which God has strategically put you to be his representative and ambassador. You're going to be the Bible that Jesus read, uh, read, that others read. You're going to be the Jesus that others see. God wants you to see your work as a way of serving him. And he wants the world to witness his living spirit of excellence through you. I mean, here's the deal. If God is not your life, Someone else is going to be your life or something else. Because that's just how we're wired. If God's not your life in that void, something else is going to fill that void and something else is going to be your life. It's true. And, and, and you know, nobody, nobody really just kind of overtly wakes up and says, you know what, I think I'll make career success the all-consuming passion for my life and the thing that defines my life and the things that, thing that makes me feel worthy as a human being. I mean, we, we're not that overt about it. Nobody, nobody overtly wakes up and says, you know, I think I'll make my child's success the sole determining factor of my worth as a parent. And nobody is so bold as to post a blog that says, you know, from this day on, the amount of money that I earn is going to be the metric of my significance as a human being. That's, we don't typically put it out there like that. But when we don't have God as our life, we will just inevitably drift toward that. We are, we'll drift toward that. And if we're not pursuing life in God, we're going to be pursuing life some, somewhere else. We just will. Because we're programmed to pursue we're programmed to pursue. This week I came across an excellent definition of sin. <laughs> wow, this is a good definition of sin. Hadn't thought about it this way before, but it's, it fits. You know what sin is? Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And our world is forever inflating the things of this world to religious proportions because it's trying to fill the void that's left when we're not satisfied with God. 
And the thing about Daniel is that he was free to excel in every way because God was his life. And guess what? If you are in Christ, you're a new creature. And if you are in Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 1, you have been given a treasury from heaven. Paul says in Ephesians 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That's the whole book of Ephesians right there. I mean, in Christ, you have been chosen, you have been predestined, you have been adopted, you have been redeemed, your sins have been forgiven, Uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and has sealed you uh, for heaven, all of this and so much more. This inexhaustible treasury from heaven. So you don't have to prove yourself. You can live with poison, peace, and grace. So if you get tenure, God be praised. If you don't, then God be praised. If you uh, uh, make your sales quota for the month, then God be praised. If not, then okay, we're going to figure this out. But my identity is not at stake. If I preach a decent sermon, God be praised. If not, well, let's hope it's short. You know. (laughs) Daniel had nothing to lose, which is why he gave it his best which is why he excelled, which is why Darius wanted to promote him as prime minister. When God is your life, there'll be a spirit of excellence that'll just exude from your life. And not everybody's going to be happy about this, you know, because there's professional envy going on by Daniel's enemies, and it's going to get pretty personal here, right? His enemies can't fault his integrity. His enemies can't fault his work ethic. His enemies can't fault his work product. So so all they've got against him is to try to pit Daniel against his faith. And so this is what they do. They go to the king. And I could just, you know, think about the emperor of this kingdom. Man, he gets things thrown at him right and left all day long. He's going from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And something gets on his agenda. He wants to deal with it and move on and And they know this, so they say, Your Majesty, now that the new regime is in place, we advise unity and solidarity in the kingdom. And to that end, we propose that for the next 30 days, under penalty of death in the lion's den, your subjects, one and all, pray to you and worship you, and only you. It'll bring the nation together. You know, it's kind of going to take pastor appreciation to a new level. I don't know what Darius was thinking. He wasn't thinking. You know, it came on his plate. He wanted to get off his plate. Sounds good to me. Sign here. He did. Boom. Daniel knew exactly what to do before the ink was dry. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went up to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God. And then verse 10 says, I love this, as he had done previously. As he had done previously. It's like, you know, Daniel's not changing. He's in his 80s. (laughs) There's no crisis of choice for him. There's no dark night of the soul here. (laughs) He's doing his day. And that includes going to his two-story home, which... You know, it'd be fairly nice 
It was a fairly nice home because he was in the upper echelons of government. He opens his windows. He prays towards Jerusalem three times a day. He knows who he is. He knows who God is. He knows how God feels about him. And Daniel would rather surrender his life than surrender his prayer life. Scripture says he gave thanks before his God. You know, so he never grumbled. He didn't say, oh, you know, I've served you for over 70 years now and this is how it's going to end? No. God is his home. You know, God, so wherever you are, that's where I want to be because you're my home. Jerusalem, Babylon, you're my home. Though I'm far away, though, though I'm far from my homeland, God, though the temple in Jerusalem are laid waste, Though I've not been to my home since my childhood, I look to you in gratitude and appreciation and thanksgiving for all you are and all you've done. Thank you. He gave thanks before his God. And of course, there were spies who in turn tattled to the king, your majesty, didn't you sign an irrevocable executive order under penalty of death by mauling in the lion's den? One that forbade prayer to anyone but you for the next 30 days? Well, yes, of course. uh, Darius said, the thing stands fast. Verse 13. Well, Daniel, one of the exiles, meaning he's not one of us, he's lived there 70 years, not one of us, from Judah, racial slur going on there, He's doing his own thing. He's praying to his own God. He's blatantly disregarding the king's irrevocable executive order. And at that very moment, Darius, though he be king, realized he'd become a pawn. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And and this is where the story just drips with irony. One of the literary features of Hebrew writing is irony. Irony. And it shows up right here. So ironically, the king, who is the mightiest in the empire finds himself in checkmate by his own legislation. You see that? That's irony. This king who makes law now has to scurry to find a loophole in his law by sunset. That's irony. In verse 16, this king who signs a decree against prayer to other gods, in essence expresses his prayer that Daniel's God save him. (laughs) Irony. And ironically, though Daniel is under the sentence of death, it's Darius who can't get a night's sleep. Verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. Diversions, what's that? He's the king. Figure it out. 
and sleep fled from him. And the next morning, the king rushes to Daniel in haste, right? What's a king rushing and being in haste? Kings don't do that. Kings have other people who do that. But this one did that. And in verse 20, he yells in this anguished tone, Oh, Daniel! See, everybody else is saying, Oh, king! Well, here the king, the mightiest man in the land, says, Oh, Daniel! And, and Daniel's only spoken words in chapter 6 occur in verses 21 and 22. Oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. And then verse 23 declared his innocence. It says Daniel was taken up out of the den and you mean not a scratch on him, right? I mean, no kind of harm was found on him. And why? Verse 23. Because he had trusted in his God. Man, when, you're, when God is your life, then there's not only going to be a spirit of excellence exuding from your life, but when God is your life, when God is your life, you're going to fearlessly trust him more than life itself, more than your life. And, and, and that's what we see here. <laughs> Ironically, Daniel's enemies thought that they had found Daniel's weakness in his prayers to God, but in fact, prayer was Daniel's greatest strength. And they didn't understand that. They just didn't get it. And to them, Daniel was this strange, peculiar, different exile. He just... And his excellent spirit made him a target of oppression. And then when he was oppressed, why, it became his opportunity, his chance to display fearless, undaunted trust in God more than life itself. And they just didn't get that. They don't understand that. And listen, church family, it's the same with us. As long as you passionately pursue Christ, as long as God in Christ is your life, the world's not going to get you. It's not. The world's going to look at Christians and say, you know, you're strange, you're a peculiar, and you know what? You're arrogant too, because, because you, know, you, you Christians think that Jesus is the only way to God. And Bible-believing Christians respond by saying, well, uh, I mean, Jesus said he was the only way to God, and he who rises from the dead gets to make the rules. I mean, that's kind of where we're coming from, and and you know, you can, you can say that as humbly as you know how, and the world will still say, well, that's arrogant. And, okay, well, I, you know, look, don't be shocked if the world doesn't get you as a believer. I mean, Jesus said this, did he not? In John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It's that simple. And here's what's so interesting about Daniel's life. I mean, you know, his enemies hated him. I mean, despised him. All of his life. But you know what? Darius loved him. 
Darius just absolutely loved. I mean, to Darius, Daniel was light, and he was attractive, and he was winsome, and he was skilled, and he was a man of integrity and excellence. And I mean, you know, with Daniel, some were just absolutely furious and enraged, and others just fell in love with God over him. And you know, if, if there's a problem with us, if we have a growth area, it just may very well be this. Nobody's really mad at us. Nobody's really attracted us. We're just kind of plain yogurt. Daniel, I mean, God was his life, his name. God is my judge. And that truth affected the way he wrote. That truth affected the way he ate. That truth affected the way he prayed. It affected the way he worshiped. And, and what makes Daniel and the lion's den so powerful? It, it's not that it answers the question, well, you know, how, you know if, if good, good, good little boys don't get eaten by big bad lions. That's not the point of Daniel chapter 6. What is the point? The point of Daniel chapter 6 is this. Where would you be willing to go if you knew that God was there? Daniel says in verse 22, I had a great night because my God sent his angel. I mean, the very presence of God was with Daniel all night long. And that just kind of takes us to this final section in Daniel. Where, you know, when God, is, when God is your life, there's not only going to be an excellence that exudes through your life. When God is your life, you're going to love God more than your life. And then when God is your life, you can be sure that he will never fail you. He will never fail you. He will never. Justice was served. The conspirators, along with their families, were judged. And then perhaps a greater miracle occurred. This, this pagan emperor, Darius, offers this poetic hymn of praise to God. Verses 26 and 27. He's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This amazing God. This amazing God. And we worship that God today. The God who is our life. The God who sent his angel, his messenger. We've seen this angel before, you know. In Daniel chapter 3, his appearance was described as a son of the gods who does not deliver outside the furnace. And he does not deliver outside the den of the lions. He always goes in. Always goes in. He goes in the furnace and he goes in the den. Do you see what's happening here? Daniel's overnight exile in the lion's den was reflective of his entire life, his, his whole life. Daniel 
spent before the lions from chapter 1 when he was exiled to Babylon to chapter 3 when his friends were in the fiery furnace and here in chapter 6. You see what's happening here? Daniel is giving us a glimpse of the day when God will repair all that is broken in this world. Daniel's life forces us to look ahead to God's ultimate deliverance in Jesus Christ. As the exiles were listening to Daniel's life story, they were at one and the same time longing for the day when God would provide a true king. You, you can anticipate the coming of Christ in Daniel's life and because there are parallels between the two that are uncanny. For instance, whereas Daniel's enemies plotted to kill him, did not the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus? Whereas Daniel's enemies uh, said that according to the law, he must die, Jesus' enemies, the Sanhedrin, said, we have a law that says that Jesus must die. Whereas Darius failed to save Daniel, Pilate failed to save Jesus. Whereas Daniel trusted in his God, Jesus said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Whereas Daniel was placed in a pit covered by a sealed stone, a sealed stone covered the tomb of Jesus. And whereas early in the morning, Daniel was lifted from the grave early on that first day of the week. The angel cried out, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Whereas Daniel proclaimed, uh, whereas Darius proclaimed Daniel's God to be the living God enduring Forever does not the Apostle Paul say in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And why? Because of this difference between Daniel and Jesus. Whereas when Daniel went into the den of the lions, his life was preserved. But when Jesus entered the den of the cross, his life was taken. The justice of God roared against him, ravaging his body on the cross. Jesus was devoured for us. Jesus was devoured instead of us. Jesus was devoured as our substitute for our sins. Jesus faced the judgment of God for me. And so I can deal with disease because I know that the ultimate disease has been taken care of in the ultimate den. And I can deal with loneliness because I know that ultimate loneliness was dealt with on the cross. Jesus was thrown away and cut off. I can deal with darkness because I know that Jesus himself experienced utter darkness for me. He is my life. He is my life. The world just doesn't get me. Well, you know. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth 